I'm Andrew Perlot. Welcome to the Socratic State of Mind podcast, where we discuss how the ideas of history's wisest men and women can improve our lives and make us better people. Today is part one of a two-part interview with Donald Robertson. Donald is a therapist and author who's played a large role in the modern revival of Stoicism. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, and several other books. He's also an expert in the intersection between therapeutic techniques and ancient philosophy. This is a wide-ranging discussion of self-improvement, stoicism, the life Socratic, and other topics. Enjoy. I was wondering if we could start off on the topic of advice, because there's really no lack of it floating around in self-help books and on the internet. And most people who are familiar with your work as a therapist or as a uh, philosophic advisor, they probably have a conception of you as someone who gives good advice. But I'm curious to know if you actually see yourself as giving advice in that sense, and if you think Mm -hmm. advice is even an effective way to help someone when they're in psychological distress yeah. or um, maybe really they feel question. stuck? I like that question. It's a good one. What we usually say in counselling and therapy, the cliched answer is that generally speaking, counsellors and therapists don't give advice. Um, they operate in a more what's called the Socratic or client-centred way. But that's not entirely true. Um Therapists in particular that specialize in areas like harm reduction and drugs, um, sexual problems, like are more likely to give advice to clients. There may be evidence-based advice uh, that the client would know about that's helpful to them. Um, And also we give clients advice about the best way to use certain psychological techniques and we give information to them about what research tells us and things like that. However, I do believe that there are problems with advice giving that it's important to recognize. Um, and so one of them is that it makes clients passive. Sorry, switching my phone off, it's beeping a bit there. Um, and it reminds me of something that lies at the heart of the philosophic tradition in the West, funnily enough, which is Socrates went, we're told, um, at least one source tells us he went himself to Delphi, about three or four days' walk, it would have been from Athens. And there, his friend, Chirophon, did something kind of cheeky. Chirophon was a wacky guy. He was like a pale-looking guy, uh, dressed in raggedy robes. People said he looked like a spectre that had come up from Hades, but he was a little bit hyperactive. He was also a philosopher, like Socrates, they grew up together in the same suburb of Athens. And he was known for being a kind of crazy guy, if you can imagine this character. So he went to Delphi with Socrates, and it's a pretty big deal to put a question to the Delphic Oracle. You're speaking to a god. and It's a, a woman called the Pythia, the priestess, but she's possessed by the god Apollo, and Apollo speaks through her. And he speaks on behalf of Zeus, so it's a big deal. And uh, you had to make sacrifices and go through various rituals and stuff like that. So apparently Chirophon did all this. And then he asks this crazy question. Um, He says, is there anyone wiser than Socrates? Which is a really odd question to ask. And the Pythia gives the answer, no man is wiser than Socrates. And Socrates spends, at least in the version that he gives in Plato's Apology, that kind of causes him to really properly begin his philosophical mission trying to figure out what on earth that could possibly mean and to question it. 
And the Pythia was known for saying things that were very concise, but cryptic. Um, Heraclitus says of the Sibyl, like the other prophetess that was based there, she neither conceals nor reveals the truth, but gives us a sign or a clue. And we have to kind of figure out what it means for ourselves. Now, you might think, what's the point of this digression? Well, the point is, this is the main thing that Socrates thought he had to figure out, whether he was wiser than anyone else. And he assumed that it was cryptic, and it probably did not mean what it appeared to mean. So what it meant in reality would be different from what it appeared to mean. There's a distinction between appearance and reality that's absolutely fundamental to Greek philosophy and gets applied in many, many different ways. It's kind of the, the key like, that unlocks most of Greek philosophy. Very simple distinction. Um, getting beyond appearances and grasping the underlying reality. Uh, the maxims of the and the pronouncements of the Delphic Oracle didn't mean what they appear to mean. And so you had to think about them really hard to try to get to the truth underlying them. Socrates said something quite odd. There were famous advice givers at the time called the Sophists. Um, the most famous was a guy called Protagoras. And he was the first guy to dare to call himself a sophist and charge money for it. But it wasn't below, it wasn't long before everyone was doing it. Like he had many followers. But Protagoras was the first guy at Athens to say, almost like he had a shingle made or a business card printed that said, I'm a professional wise man. That's my job title. And people thought that was a, a kind of outrageous claim to make. Um, and of course it is. And Socrates thought the pronouncements the speeches, the sayings that we get from Protagoras and his followers, he compares to the maxims and pronouncements that come from the Delphic Oracle. He Socrates was concerned that this was wisdom that people were purchasing mm -hmm. and receiving passively. Um, I like to say, as if you went, in the same way that you would obtain onions from a greengrocer, people would go to Protagoras and the other sophists to obtain wisdom. They'd hand over cash, and he'd literally teach them a maxim that they would then go out and just kind of reiterate to people. It'd be wrote, learned. And Socrates thought there was something quite puzzling about this because he thought some of the things they say do seem quite wise and quite profound, but this cannot. He he was puzzled as to whether we can one can learn or teach wisdom and virtue in this way. And I think Socrates arrived at a kind of compromise, a paradoxical answer. I think Socrates may have said, we can't teach wisdom, at least not in the way that Protagoras does, but we can learn it. In fact, we could even learn it from Protagoras. But Socrates then goes further and arrives at an even more paradoxical conclusion. He said, after questioning many different people from all walks of life, he thought he was actually learning more wisdom from people that didn't claim to be wise. Like shoemakers, one of his friends was Simon the Shoemaker, who worked in a shop in the Agora. Um, he talked to slaves and prostitutes and foreigners, which was shocking to the Athenians. Doing philosophy uh, was originally the kind of preserve of uh, wealthy, young Athenian men. In particular, women weren't really supposed to do that kind of stuff, but Socrates did philosophy with women. He thought he could learn wisdom from anybody by questioning. He thought he could learn from the mistakes and things like that. But he saw it as the Socratic method. He saw it as a process of thinking that he was engaged in. So you asked me, is there 
is it my job to give advice? And does it is it other problems uh, with giving advice? And I think after that slight detour, you know, maybe it's fairly clear. Socrates would have said, yes, there are problems giving moral advice because we do it verbally. Socrates was very suspicious of books. He thought the problem with books is you can't ask them questions. And you'll notice the Socratic method consists in arriving, first of all, at a verbal definition. He'll say, what is justice? Uh, what is courage? And then he'll brainstorm possible exceptions to the rule. So one example would be he asks uh, some Athenian generals what courage consists in, and they say courage consists in standing your ground. And that would be the most obvious answer they could give because the phalanx formation that the Athenian army depended on uh, required people to stay in formation and not to break ranks. It was extremely dangerous, and it required a lot of discipline. They spent a lot of time training people to stay in formation. And Socrates said, that's a really good definition of what it means to be courageous. But hang on a minute, what if you're in the cavalry? Like, it doesn't make sense then to say that courage consists in standing your ground, because like, usually cavalry charge at the enemy. And, and he said, oh, also, uh, the Spartans don't fight in formation like that. They charge into their ranks of the enemy. Like, and he said, well, also, what about during a retreat? Is it not possible to show courage during a retreat? And also, what about if you're not in battle? What about during times of peace? Aren't the forms of courage that people exhibit during peace? So this is Socrates in a nutshell. He's always saying, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. And kind of creatively brainstorming exceptions. Now, it annoyed him that you can't do that easily with a book. Like, you can't question and interrogate a book, like, and get it to unpack and refine its sayings, advice, and definitions. It's passive. Mm. And he thought the problem with the sophists is they'll teach you a saying or a maxim, and then you're going to flick it. You've got to the greengrocer and you've bought a bag of onions, and you can go around, you're very proud of your bag of onions, you know, and you show it to everybody. It makes you seem really clever. But Socrates said, it's not real knowledge. You know, because it's really just takes the form of, of what the Greeks called opinion rather than knowledge, because you don't really understand how you arrived at that saying, and you don't really understand the situations where it doesn't apply or the exceptions to it. I, I think this throughout the ages is a problem. We can advice giving. Someone might say to you, listen, it's good advice to always speak your mind until it isn't. Hmm. Right? Well, you know, it's good uh, it's good advice to avoid confrontation except when it isn't. Like any moral rule or piece of psychological advice, I guess virtually any rule, certainly most of them, um, admits of exceptions. And the real problem is when people stick rigidly to rules, pieces of advice or maxims that they've been given. Um, in therapy, we would say it's very common the case that people have coping strategies. It's like a rule that they follow. And uh, those coping strategies maybe used to work. Maybe they worked in, when they were in the army, or maybe they worked when they were children, uh, or maybe they worked in a previous relationship. But they don't work anymore. Like, you know, they're getting bad results from them. But the weird thing is they keep using them. Like, they're banging their head against the wall. So a wise person would be more adaptive, as we sometimes say in therapy, to put it very simply, they'd be more flexible. There's an interesting piece of research that shows... In a nutshell, I'll, I'll say I'll put I'll say the conclusion very briefly without explaining the research. But there's some research that shows that if you teach people in writing or orally a verbal rule to follow, and then you allow other people to figure out a rule that's effective through trial and error, 
when you change the test situation so that the rule they're following no longer works, the people who have learned that passively or verbally will carry on doing it, um, like using a maladaptive coping strategy that no longer works. And the people who learn through trial and error will revert back to trial and error and they'll figure out an alternative rule to follow. Mm. And that always reminded me of the Socratic method. Socrates is kind of thinking things through. He's te- he calls his method the elenchus, the testing. Like everything has to be rigorously tested. Like he has to, he's happy when he's figured out a rule seems good, but doesn't always work. Like, because at least he's kind of close to the truth. At least he's realized it works sometimes, but not all of the time. Like, even if he never figures out a verbal rule or a maxim that applies in every single situation. So I think that's one of the problems with uh, advice giving. It's something that I think Socrates was particularly aware of and it's something that therapists are are very aware of we have to be cautious giving people advice and also because what seems to work for one client might not work for another client and you need to know a lot about a person's situation personality background and resources in order to know which strategies are actually going to work most effectively for them yeah you know i think of uh my own life and the lessons that have really helped me have been the ones that i've struggled to learn like virtually nothing that's really made a huge impact in my life has merely been a result of someone going this is what you should do here's the strategy like you can learn skills like that but most of the important lessons you struggle with and I wonder if maybe the role that you take on isn't so much as a a giver of advice, but that whole idea of a Socratic midwife, like help them give birth to the knowledge within them, uh, make them see that they already know what to do. It's like that really cliched saying, you know, that if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but if you teach Mm. him how to fish, he'll be able to feed himself forever or whatever. Like the Socratic method is like that. Uh, that's the difference between the sophists and Socrates. The if you go to Protagoras, he'll give you a fish, right? But you go to Socrates, he'll teach you how to fish. Like it's a methodology, like, and so that that's really the difference. And it doesn't work that way. Sometimes in therapy, you can just tell people you'd probably be better off doing this, or, or maybe you know you don't realize how this thing works. Um, there's a lot of stuff that people don't know about how. Uh, the emotions function that we do know from research. So sometimes there are facts. We we call that, there's a terrible name for this in therapy. We call it psychoeducation. It doesn't mean educating psychos. It means educating people about psychology. So psychoeducation in therapy is when we impart factual information to people. I mean, essentially, you know, we're, we're giving them advice and doing that stuff that they wouldn't know about because they've not, people haven't read the research studies and so on. Um, but we have to be very careful that we don't give people advice and they go off and apply it in a rigid way. Um, and that's often how they'll, they'll run into problems. Uh, we see that happening a lot in therapy. The therapist is kind of kicking himself saying, I didn't mean do that. Like, you know, when I said facial fears, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mean do that. Mm. Like, you know, you misinterpreted. When I, when I said you need to lay down boundaries, I didn't mean that way. Like, so we have to be a little bit careful. Any good advice can be interpreted badly and you know people need help to figure out how to arrive at, at good advice for themselves and adapt it to, to different situations. I think this is a danger. We're talking about stoicism. Um, now, the problem with the stoics is they're all dead, right? 
So as Socrates would have said, we can't ask them questions. And what we get is we have less than 1% of their writings, a rough estimate, surviving today. And so we don't really see them doing philosophy very much. We, we kind of get their conclusions and their practical advice. We, we get maxims and so on. But that was the product of dialectic. Like they would think things through very carefully and debate it with other philosophers. So they were flexible in their thinking. We see traces of that in the discourses of Epictetus. We can see him engaging in dialectic with some of his students. So we know that the Stoics did do that. They considered themselves to be using the Socratic method. It just so happens that the, in the tiny sliver of writings that survive today, where what we're getting more are the, the conclusions that they arrived at rather than the process that helped them to get there. I think if we could beam us, if we were beamed back in time right now and we talked to Marx Aurelius about Stoicism, his main concern would be that most of the people that are following his philosophy are kind of learning it, like they're learning maxims, mm. and they're not really in learning the process or the methodology of thinking for themselves, which was really, you know, what was the the source of those maxims, and, and, and perhaps in a sense was even more important. I wonder kind of along those lines, is there any advice or uh, spiritual exercise in the Pierre Hedot sense that you think is objectively good or effective, but which you hesitate to give to people, perhaps because you think it won't land right or it requires yeah. buy-in of a previous idea for them oh, to wow. really be able to use it? That's, see, that's a great question as well. Like we know from my background is in evidence-based clinical practice, right? So one of the things that we learn from research, one of the general learnings is that sometimes we find techniques that work really well in clinical trials, but they don't necessarily work well with real people. And it's often because of low um, adherence rates to the protocol. And by, by that, I mean, in a clinical trial, you can get people to do stuff that they won't do in real life. The stuff that we, it's kind of frustrating. The, there are things that we know work really well in psychotherapy, but people don't do them because they're tedious. Um, they require practice. They make them feel silly when they're doing them or whatever. Like, you know, the, so the problem is, you know, because there's such a big self-improvement market, people tend to just naturally shop around for the stuff that feels convenient and easy and enjoyable for them to do. And those aren't necessarily the most effective coping strategies. So this is something in, in, in a clinical setting, a therapist, you know, can usually um, help clients to figure out by trial and error learning that there may be other techniques like that are more uncomfortable, like more challenging. Um, I mean, for instance, the single most robustly established technique in the entire field of psychotherapy, as I like to call it, is what we call exposure therapy, in vivo graded exposure therapy. We've known that for over half a century or more. Like it's so well established, every researcher takes it for granted. And it's one of the benchmarks against which we compare other techniques. But less than 50% of clinicians use it on a regular basis, right? Because often the therapists can't be bothered doing it. It's a boring technique. Mm. In vivo exposure involves, if someone has a cat phobia, it would require getting them in a room with cats and waiting until their anxiety abates naturally. And we know that works about 90% of the time. 
and it, it can work in three, four, five hours or something like that. Um, and it, it's permanent. There's a low relapse rate with phobias. Um, and it's easy to prove that in clinical trials, but it can be tricky to get individual people to face their fears because the one thing that phobics really don't want to do is actually the thing that would be most therapeutic for them. Um, so that can be a challenge. And there, you're right that you know stoicism today is received as a form of self-improvement advice and people select out why when i wrote my first book on stoicism i identified about 18 different psychological strategies that were fairly common in the stoic literature and over time i noticed that stoicism was becoming more and more popular but i didn't see any evidence hardly any evidence that, that most people were doing any of the practices that the stoics describe and, and more and more books on stoicism come out and they were kind of cool and they had interesting stuff in them but sometimes I'd have to stop and pinch myself and say I've read this book and it's pretty cool and it talks a lot about stoicism it says loads of things about Seneca and Epictetus not once does it mention though any of the psychological practices that the stoics employed sometimes they do and most sometimes they'll mention two or three of them um so there's again there's this kind of strange passivity that stoicism falls into when it's received in this way and people become kind of selective about doing the bits that they find easy and convenient. You know, the Stoics want us to face our fears and imagination. Some people do that. Um, but, uh, you know, the Stoics did it every day. Like, at least that's what they imply. And that consistency like, and dedication uh, is unusual. Like, you won't meet that many people that face their greatest fears and imagination uh, as vividly as they can on a, on a, a regular basis. Uh, it would require quite a lot of self-discipline. And to be fair, it's difficult for people to have that type of discipline without social support. The main, you might ask, if it's so rare for a phobic to approach the thing that they're frightened of, well, what would, what would ever convince a phobic to go and pet a cat if they have a cat phobia? Or pick up a snake if they've got a snake phobia. Well, like ninety nine percent of the time, the only thing that would persuade them to do it would be the presence of another person, a coach, a therapist, or a parent with a child. Usually, it begins with the parent saying to the kid, "You know, get back on the horse, or get back in the water, or whatever," and then like offering encouragement, motivation, reassurance for somebody to face the fears. Left in isolation. People find it really difficult to do that without anybody standing behind them and encouraging them. Their natural instinct is to run as far as possible away from the, the things that they fear. And that's one problem with the prevalence of self-help and self-improvement literature is often it looks like it's benefiting people, but they'll instinctively, uh, instinctively avoid confronting the things that are most painful for them. Self-help literature reminds me, um, it creates an interesting problem because if you criticize self-improvement or self-help advice, people say, but it works, it's useful, it's good, it's helping me. And we often find this dilemma in therapy. It would be like someone's shed was in fire and they were throwing buckets of water over it. And you came along and you said, buddy, buddy, you need to stop doing that. You need to stop doing that. You're putting yourself in terrible danger. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? My shed's on fire like, and the water's putting it out. I need to keep doing this. And you were like, no, but turn around, like, your house is on fire. You should be mm. putting that out first. Right? You've got bigger problems to deal with. And they're not looking at the house. Like, it's behind their back. They're oblivious to it. It's a blind spot. 
Like, so it seems weird to them that you would tell them to stop dealing, stop putting this fire out. So they have like a uh, problem. They think that they're, they have a productivity problem, but their real problem is that they have a horrible anger problem or something like that. That's one of the most common ones. There's a natural tendency for people to disown responsibility for anger. It's baked into the very nature of the emotion itself. And then maybe you've heard me say, I like to say that anger is the royal road to self-improvement. The internet's awash with self-improvement advice. Uh, hardly any of it addresses anger. Mm. Like, although it's one of the most common. And, and weirdly, I don't think it's you know, too much to point out that some of the self-help communities that exist online seem to attract angry people and, and even to fuel their anger and to be run by angry, shouty, aggressive individuals sometimes. Mm. Um, and that's sort of obvious in, in a sense. Um, so the people think they're helping themselves. They're doing self-improvement. I'm getting better at self-discipline. Like I tidied my room, like I made my bed today. I'm getting better at this self-discipline stuff. But then they go on the internet and just, spout abuse like other people and they've got rage like the they're not doing anything to address nobody's Mm. you know pointing out to them the main reason that people deal with anger is because someone else tells them that they've got a problem it's usually their wife or husband or they're in an institution like a school or the military or a prison and they get referred for anger people go buddy you've got a problem with anger you need to go and see a therapist right but people who are left to their own devices, particularly people who are single, don't think they have a problem with anger. They think everyone else has a problem. You're all idiots. You're the ones <laughs> that should be in therapy, not me, is what yeah. they think. Right? So they stew and f- their anger festers like it's an untreated sore because they're not going to admit that it's a problem. And so we have a kind of epidemic of anger management. Really, do we? Go and look at the comments on YouTube. Like, you know, go anywhere on social media and you can see people getting enraged at one another and look at politics and how divisive it's become. Look at the escalation in violence and acts of domestic terrorism, like and the hatred that people experienced towards different groups. It's on the ascendant. Um, I think that's partly because social media encourages it. Well, it's also very useful in the sense that if you want to influence somebody, one of the best ways to do it is just make them mad. Uh, if you, they're kind of controllable. People, when you when you get yeah. those extreme emotions, feed people, they're they're likely to do something that, you know that they normally wouldn't do. They'd think twice about. Anger's always been the easiest way to manipulate people. Like throughout the age, everybody's all, who take a take a, a a broad, expansive look at history. Throughout history. Political orators have specialized in making people angry. Like, because it makes it easy. People turn into sheep. The Stoic said, you know, anger is temporary madness. Like, when people get angry, they, the Stoics would say they become enslaved to their emotions and they become enslaved to the things and people with whom they're angry. And they're easily led, like, and manipulated. That's why the Stoics were so keen. They thought anger was the main emotion that we need to address. We have, it's no coincidence we have an entire book by Seneca that survives today that's all about managing anger. The, the, Stoics, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, anger is um, anger management is one of the main themes that runs through that book. If you look at it closely, he talks about other stuff, but anger is the main thing that he's concerned with, uh, tackling. Um, just like Seneca, I put so much emphasis on it as well. The Stoics, we know the Stoics in general did. 
So it's it's definitely um and in particularly insidious problem because it's one that people naturally neglect to deal with. And it's also in a sense the most social, we could argue about this, but in a, in an obvious sense, it's the emotion that places the most risk to society and other people. Obviously, if it leads to violence, um, you know, there's a more tangible risk that it presents. Other emotions can in a more indirect way can place other people at risk, but obviously anger. A good example of anger making people vulnerable is when Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman. It's my favourite example. And Ali thought, I can't beat this guy. He's a monster. He's a giant. Like, but Ali thought the way to beat him is to make him angry. Like he provoked him like, so that he would exhaust himself. We know that people, when they become angry, there are many cognitive biases that come into play. Um, I think that's the thing that convinces people that anger is temporary madness in a sense, that you can easily identify the specific cognitive biases that happen. And one of them is that, one of my favorite ones is that angry people typically underestimate risk. So that means that they'll expose themselves to more danger. So an angry guy in a fight will drop his guard. Like he's more likely to get injured. Maybe he fights more aggressively, but he doesn't protect himself. And, and he maybe doesn't protect other people around him either. So angry people place themselves and other people around them at risk. Why? That's why another reason that we have to be careful about them. Um, and I think the Stoics realized all of these things. And, you know, that's one of the main messages that they're trying to communicate to us down through the centuries. One of the things that I think is super striking about our modern world, I'm not sure if I'd use the word nihilism, but at least it's a very noticeable disinterest in the big questions, if you will, like what is the meaning of life or even just what is the meaning that I choose to give to life? And if you ask most people, even religious people, they often they don't have really a great answer, uh, which, yeah. which seems strange to me because you think at least the religious would. Um, and we have some studies that show that if you don't have some sort of meaning in your life, that you're less resilient to stressors, you're more likely to become depressed. And I wonder if you have any idea how we got here, where like these big questions yeah. don't seem of interest anymore. And is there anything we can do about it? And, may, and perhaps as an addendum, if mm -hmm. anyone is listening right now who doesn't feel like they their life has any meaning, how would you suggest they go about finding any? Well, I'll answer it first of all by saying that it's an extension of what we were talking about a moment ago. I think people do talk a lot about philosophy and religion and the meaning of life and stuff again like you know you walk down any high street there'll be some shops selling crystals and stuff like that there's churches everywhere you know there's groups the internet's full of there's magazines everywhere about mindfulness and self-improvement and stuff like that but you're right that if you sit down i mean if we do this all the time in therapy where we'll get people who call themselves self-help junkies and they've been on every meditation retreat and they've read every self-help book and then they'll sit you they'll sit down in front of you and you'll ask them like a really simple question about you know like what, what's the the main thing that's causing your problems do you think or what are your goals for self-improvement and suddenly they've got no idea mm. so it's often the case that people scut around a subject like they create the appearance that they're answering questions while in reality avoiding them like the best way to conceal 
what you're doing is to make it appear as if you're doing it. So make it appear as if you're doing something else, right? Well, the best way to conceal the fact that you're not doing something, I should say, is to make it appear that you are doing it. And that, like, I feel that you get that with the sort in the ancient world of office. You get it today with self improvement on the internet. There's a lot of kind of noise and you know a, a lot of um, kind of illusory progress. You know, like people talking about it. The I think if Socrates was around today, the question he'd ask people, you know, is what is wisdom? It seems to me that's the the integral question. That's a question I like to ask children, and they'll usually have a go at answering it. You can help them. You can say, "Do you think this character in the movie is wise, or in the the comic, or whatever?" You know, do you think uh, you know some of the characters show more wisdom than others? Like, and people can kind of answer that, but it's difficult for them to pin down what they mean by wisdom. Socrates thought wisdom was the most important quality in life. So it's crazy that we talk about philosophy. You know, um, we do self-improvement, but most people have never kind of avoided asking themselves that question, you know, and in a sense, that's that's where philosophy should begin. What should we do with people that feel as if they lack a sense of meaning or purpose? How can we help them? That's a, a, a question that's very pertinent to modern psychotherapy. It applies to many, many people, but... If you ask any therapist, they'll say, well, are you talking about clinically depressed clients? Because the group that they work with that most obviously tend to talk about having a, a, a lack of purpose, um, the one, the group that you, when you're a therapist, you you hear sort of certain stereotypical statements or responses from particular clients. Clients with depression will often say there's no point. There's no point to anything. Doesn't feel there's any point to anything. Mm. That's one of their favorite kind of things to say, right? I don't see the point of anything anymore. Uh, it doesn't feel as if there's any point to anything. Well, one of the things that we do to address that sometimes in therapy is really involves getting people to notice that they do assign value to things or every day. Like as soon as you lift a little finger, as soon as you get out of your bed in, in the morning. You, you're assigning value. We, we swim in the ocean of value. Like it's uh, it's how our, our our mind works. But when people are depressed, they they lose contact with the values that they're assigning. They have values. Um, I mean, one is that they don't like being depressed. Right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have jostled up to and handed over money to have therapy or whatever in the first place, probably. So that in itself shows some kind of value judgment. They think depression sucks. And often there are other values that people have implicitly, but it's it's not that they lack values. It's more, it's more like they've lost sight of them. Mm. They can't see the wood for the trees. They, there's a smoke screen like that's blocking their vision of these values. Um, you can ask people questions about the things that they used to do. Like often you can make a, a list of things that people used to do before they became depressed. Um, and often that's a reflection of the, their values. You can get them to look at their life from different perspectives and ask them, you know, what would they like to be remembered for after they've died? I mean, not everybody can answer these questions, but if you keep asking these different perspective shifting questions, eventually you can kind of tease out answers in a Socratic way from, from people. An easier one in some ways is just to get people to talk. See, an easy route to go down is to get people to talk about the individuals that they most admire or respect. And then you can infer 
what their values are for their own behavior from the values that they place on other people. And if they're really stuck in depression and they say, I don't admire any, I don't have any values anymore. You, usually when a client comes into therapy before they've even sat down and opened their mouth, they're already thinking a bit about the people that they can't stand. So you start negatively if you have to and say, well, who really pisses you off? And they'll say Donald Trump or they'll say Joe Biden or whatever. And then you'll say, well, why? What is it about him? I don't care who it is. But what I want to get at is you really hate hypocrisy. You really hate corruption. You really hate, what is it? What are the qualities you're attributing to these other people? Like you're projecting your values left, right and center. Like, um, And so often depressed people have a long list of grievances against other people that they you know they can't stand and that implies well if you hate hypocrisy for instance that kind of implies that you value integrity mm. like so i mean how would you score yourself from zero to, to ten over the past week in terms of actually living in accord with that value like and exhibiting integrity in your relationships and people would say oh well, like zero and you say well how could we get that to increase to one or two out of ten at least? Is a name one small thing that you can do that would take you at least a millimeter further in the direction of exhibiting integrity? Like, and then you can build up people's connectedness with their values that way. They have values, like, but they uh, usually they they struggle to identify them. Strangely, Socrates knew this that we can often identify our values by thinking about uh, the qualities that we admire in other people. There's a dialogue in Xenophon where a young man called Critobulus comes to see him. He's probably 15 um, or thereabouts. He's the son of Crito. Socrates is one of his best friends. Uh, he grew up in, in the same suburb as him. And... Uh, this guy says, Socrates, I want you to introduce me to people that would be good friends. And Socrates says, in typical Socrates fashion, well, what are the qualities that make somebody a good friend? Like, how would you differentiate a good friend from a bad friend? And so this guy kind of rattles off the list. And then Socrates basically says, how many of these qualities do you exhibit yourself? Like, and the guy's kind of gobsmacked. He has aporia, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, Socrates tended to make people feel a bit disorientated and, and confused. Like, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it like that. Like, so, you know, so Socrates is like, well, why don't you go away and have a think about that? That seems like a more important question. He's helping that guy to identify values that he should be investing his time and energy in pursuing, but it has never occurred to him because he's kind of wants other people to exhibit those qualities. It's, it can, it's sort of passive again. Like, I know what I want from other people. Like, the other question we can ask people is if we get them to define what the qualities are that would make a good parent or a good friend, you can say, yesterday, in minutes, how much time did you spend doing stuff that you would consider as being in accord with those values? Mm -hmm. How much time did you spend being a good friend yesterday? And if we were to, I like we like counting stuff in cognitive therapy. So the client will go, I don't know. The most common answer to that is zero, right? Not always, but like I'd probably say ninety percent of the time or more. The client will go zero minutes. And then the therapist will go, there'll be like a little drum roll. And the therapist will go, well, no wonder you're depressed. Like, mm. Because if I sat and thought about what was most important to me in life, 
and I spent zero minutes doing it every day, I probably start to feel kind of depressed after a while. Like, so I think that's the way to approach it. It's just to help people to to realize that they already they must already have values. In fact, if you want to be really kind of picky about it, occasionally you'll get someone who's really evasive in therapy. Um, and they'll they'll say, I just don't, I just can't figure out what my values are, and it really frustrates me, right? And you know, I I just can't identify, even if I think about it like that, I still can't figure out what my values are, and it's 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 kind of annoying. Uh, and the therapist go, yeah, like that, I get, that really sucks, doesn't it? Like, and they go, yeah, yeah, it really sucks. And then the therapist might say, well, doesn't that imply though that you you hate not knowing what your values are, mm. and that you place a lot of value on values clarification? Like and a particular type of knowledge or insight or, or wisdom. Like if you place so much value on that, how many minutes did you spend yesterday trying to clarify your values? Like or working towards a goal? Well, zero. Mm-hmm. Like, but you just told me that you really can't stand not knowing what your values are. It kind of implies that it's really important to you to know what they are. You spent zero minutes doing anything about it. Like, and actually that I I'm being quite serious about that because I think Socrates and the Stoics and many Greek philosophers would say, in a sense, values clarification is everybody's most primordial and fundamental value. Um, This is, in a sense, part of what Socrates meant by wisdom, Um, the type of wisdom that philosophy is pursuing. Philosophy, as everyone knows, in Greek means the love of wisdom. Like the Stoics and Socrates took that very seriously. They took it very literally. Like the wisdom becomes the highest value and it becomes the North Star. Like the pursuit of it, um, the identification of it, like becomes the meaning of life for uh, philosophers in the Socratic tradition. So it, you'd expect that to be one of our values. Who in their right mind could say that the goal of life is the opposite ignorance about mm. what's most important to you what i really like is to be completely ignorant about what i think is important in life mm. like well that doesn't make any sense at all like you know uh we're already committed i think the stoics would say to valuing this type of moral wisdom it's we, we can't escape from it the way that we are constructed uh, it, it would be absurd and contradictory of us to uh, profess not to care about the truth uh, concerning the the way Socrates would phrase it, he has a nice phrase. He talks about he says it's particularly wisdom or knowledge regarding the most important things in life, the highest things in life. Who in their right mind could say that he doesn't care about the most important things in life? I don't care what the most important things in life are. Why should I want to know that? Like it's almost a kind of contradictory thing to say. So we are committed to that in the Stoics. Then we better get started clarifying what those are and how we achieve them. Um, and I think that that that's good advice for people. Um, this advice about tidying your room and making your bed and walking your back straight and all that kind of stuff is like the advice that you get from the Oracle. Like that could be good advice for one guy, but it could be bad advice for another guy. Yeah, maybe walking with your head held high and looking other people in the eye, really good idea. Like, if you want people to kind of think that you look confident, 
I used to work with 15-year-olds in uh, South London. Like I would have said most of them would be smart enough to tell you that would be a really good way to get your head caved in <laughs> yeah. like, in the back streets of South London if you did it to the wrong person, right? Um, and likewise, you know, tidying your room and, you know, making your bed and things like that, it's probably generally you know, good advice, but not if it means that you're neglecting doing other stuff, like that might be like dealing with your anger or, you know, uh, developing personal insight or other stuff that, you know, might be more useful. Like beyond a certain point, tidying your bed is probably not going to do you that much good. Like, you know, there's probably other stuff that you could potentially be spending time and effort and attention doing. So these are examples. I mean, it's this kind of it's like giving dietary advice like you know maybe works for one person doesn't necessarily work for everybody so it's very misleading because on the internet you can take simplistic advice like that and you can point to people that say it worked really well for them but doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody we need to think more strategically about the things that we're going to do to actually help ourselves and uh if we've managed to identify those values that we want to say that's that is what our meaning is it kind of then as you mentioned before behooves us to start thinking and am i actually acting and thinking and speaking as if i actually believed these things and uh, there's a famous line or multiple segments from epictetus where he basically says that look if you're not paying attention in life if you're not interrogating your thoughts words and deeds to see how they're living up to virtue or whatever your value is then you're kind yeah. of failing at life um and yeah. i wonder how you That's see like this Socrates says the unexamined and life's not worth living right right um and i kind of wonder what you think this looks like in actual practice does it end up looking kind of like uh the eastern conception of mindfulness in the yeah. buddhist sense are you constantly uh being mindful of your internal state to see like hey how does this match up yeah because for the simple reason that as epictetus points out if you don't pay attention to, it's like he said, it's like somebody walking barefoot, which the Cynic and Stoic philosophers and Socrates were kind of famous. This is a, a kind of almost a caricature of them. They went around barefoot. Um, even though Socrates was best friends with a shoemaker, <laughs> straight weirdly, like he, he, he was famous for walking around barefoot. Um, and Epictetus says, if you walk around barefoot, you have to pay attention to where you step. Mm. And you might say, yeah, but not all the time. You know, sometimes you might, you might, might wander, but you can't allow it to do that, right? Because it's when your mind wanders, you're probably going to step on a sharp stone or in some mud or something like that, right? I mean, you, you kind of have to continually pay attention, like if you're, because your feet are, you make your feet vulnerable, like, and you so see, you need to keep an eye out. And in the same way, he says, you need to pay attention to your faculty of judgment. I suppose one difference from Buddhist mindfulness, I always find it difficult to critique Buddhism because having studied it at university, I know there are it's extremely it's an extremely diverse movement. Mm. It spans many different countries and languages and cultures. Um, and so there isn't one thing really that all, like all the Buddhists say and do exactly the same. 
Um, there are some things that are fairly common, the you know the the four noble truths and things like that. They, even they are kind of interpreted slightly differently. But Buddhism often involves mindfulness of breathing and walking and things like that as a way of training the mind. The Stoics never mention anything like that really. They believe in a type of mindfulness that they call prosoche. They even have a word for it. But it's very specifically attention to the use that we make of impressions, um, which, by the way, is the same thing as saying appearances, the distinction between appearance and reality. It's noticing uh, the impressions, including feelings that we have, uh, automatic thoughts that pop into our mind, memories, like, but not allowing ourselves to be carried away by them immediately, like kind of pausing for thought, like looking through our first impressions and beyond them, um, spotting inconsistencies and contradictions uh, between our, our impressions. And so it's paying attention to what's going on in our mind and the way that we're using our mind first and foremost, I think. If we don't do that, then we're like a guy who's walking about barefoot and he pays attention until he turns the corner and then his mind wanders, and then he stands in the sharp stone and cuts his foot, piece of glass or something like that. I could pay, I could practice mindfulness, I could sit. Oh, let me put it from a modern perspective. I, You'll meet many clients in therapy. There's a problem, I'll describe actually a very, in, in meta terms, a problem. One of my, I, as a therapist, I used to train other therapists, I supervise them, and I was very interested in skills training. Um, I, I would teach lots of different, therapy techniques, I wrote about them and categorized them and studied them, verbal techniques, visual techniques, relaxation techniques, cognitive techniques, like lots of different techniques in, in therapy. So in modern therapy, if we teach a skill, say we teach, the easiest example, there's always an easiest example. The easiest example is you'll meet clients who do yoga and they're really good at relaxing really deeply. They use breathing exercises and pranayama and they can relax really deeply, but they can't, they can do it on a yoga mat but they can't do it when somebody spits in their face in the street, right? So it's a compartmentalized skill, right? And so one of the fundamental techniques that we need, we have to use in therapy is teaching people not just to learn skills, but to transfer those skills to target situations, to the challenging situations. Great, you can relax, but can you relax when somebody spits in your eye? Can you relax in the middle of an exam hall? Can you relax when you're jumping out of an airplane? Can you relax, you know, at the dentist, like, or whatever, yeah? So we need to transfer those skills to the target situations, otherwise they're no use if they're compartmentalized. Um, and so mindfulness, I think, when people practice mindfulness meditation as if it's, the, the you know, they'll sit on a cushion, um, burning incense, wearing sandals, counting japa beads or whatever they do uh, for half an hour, every day they, they become very deeply mindful and then they go to work and forget about it all potentially now there might be some natural transfer of skill there might be somebody that sits with their japa beads and their cushion and whatnot like gets really deeply mindful and then they go to work and some of that mindfulness carries over for them that varies from one person to another though and it varies a bit from one situation to another there'll be some people that leave it all in the cushion hmm. or the yoga mat and there'll be other people that kind of carry it with them throughout the rest of the day. But, you know, ideally we'd make a conscious effort or we develop a habit 
of generalizing the skills so that it applies in every situation. Epictetus warns us against compartmentalizing mindfulness. You, you know, he says, don't be a, a wise, mindful Stoic in the uh, lecture theater in the, in the Stoic school. And then as soon as you walk out the door, you leave it all behind you and you forget about it. Oh, your lions in the classroom and foxes outside, he says. And foxes are, you know, wretched, cunning, deceptive creatures in, mm. in Greek mythology. And is that why after studying uh, Eastern philosophies, you moved away from those things because you felt like it wasn't transferring over to your life in the same way that Stoicism or other Western philosophies did? I think, actually, the reason that I became more interested in Stoicism, and because initially I changed everything. When I was a young guy, um, I studied uh, Christian Gnosticism. I was really into it. I studied existential. I, was, I studied Heidegger and Jean-Paul Sartre. And I uh, was really into existentialism and uh, Buddhism. Um, I went on Buddhist retreats, practiced Buddhist meditation. And then I kind of abandoned all of those things and got into cognitive therapy and stoicism. And that was like about 25 or 30 years ago or whatever it was now. And I never looked back. And I, actually, one of the things I remember was I read the Tao Te Ching. I think it's the Tao Te Ching. Uh, it's a Taoist uh, text. And it says, run, if I remember rightly, it says running a state is like frying small fish. And I, I remember reading the commentary on it. And it kind of struck me that even the commentators weren't really sure what this meant. It probably had some kind of symbolic meaning in you know ancient China. And... I felt that a lot of the Buddhist and Taoist scriptures that I was reading were full of stuff that was kind of inscrutable to me. Like, it wasn't my culture. I could sort of get a superficial understanding of it, but beyond that, there were a lot of things that I didn't find relatable and that, you know, I couldn't really study any more deeply. Whereas there are cryptic things in the Stoic literature, but I found it easier to understand Greek philosophy and more relatable. It was more consistent with the cultural norms and values of my own society, mm. I would have said, and, and that kind of resonated with me. And the other thing that I found lacking in Buddhism, although I'm sure somewhere in Buddhism they have something like this, is that uh, it doesn't have the same emphasis on the cognitive model of emotion, which is front and center in Stoicism. It's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. And that is front and center in cognitive therapy which inherits it from Stoicism. And it seemed to me, of all the many, many things that I studied, like, you know, a lot of different philosophical, spiritual, psychological traditions, you know, many had really cool ideas. Like, I loved Carl Jung. Like, but I don't know how useful it really was in the grand scheme of things, reading about archetypes and things like that. But I, f I felt that the cognitive model of emotion had real practical value and that the research substantiated that. You know, the rest of the stuff that I was reading was kind of a bit of a diversion in a way. The cognitive model of emotion really meant something. Um, it meant we were wrong about our, the very nature of our emotions, that what uh, anger appears to be is not what it is in reality. Anger appears to be a feeling. It's just a kind of blob of, like, uh, like blood rushing and kind of... I got a feeling that washes over you, but it's not like it's a bunch of opinions mm. and values combined with some of these other things, maybe. But it 
consist of value judgments and beliefs that you say to yourself and styles of thinking. And once we know that, we can change it more easily. We have a lot more control over it. it to me, it, it was as revelatory as if you were a caveman and I gave you uh, a pocket watch and you looked at the front of it and you saw the hands turning and you thought, what kind of witchcraft is this? Like, this is amazing. And I, I turned it around and I got a pen knife out and I prized the back of it off and showed you all the little cogs and stuff inside. And if you looked at that long enough, yeah, I guess you'd maybe figure out, this is what makes this thing work. There's all these little cogs inside it and they move and that makes the hands move. Like, and now you wouldn't just be looking at it thinking, the hands just move by magic. You think, no, there's a lot of other things that make it happen. And if I pull one of these out, the whole thing stops working, right? That's how different the cognitive model of emotion is. Once we understand that anger, fear, and sadness are composed of specific things, uh, we have more control. We can be like a watchmaker, like repairing watches. We can do stuff with emotions. But if we don't even know what's inside the case, then we're like working in the dark. Like we've got no idea what we're doing with anger. Like so that to me seemed far more valuable than anything Carl Jung or Sigmund Freud or any of these guys ever said. And it was said very clearly by Epictetus, and actually it's said by Socrates. It's not even the Stoics that came out with this idea. I'm pretty sure the cognitive model of emotion goes all the way back to, to Socrates, the real Socrates. Like, because it's in both the dialogues of Plato and Xenophon. So I'm not. It's not even Plato's idea. I think it goes all the way back to Socrates, at least. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoy Socratic State of Mind, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or whatever service you use to listen. We're a new podcast, and good reviews help more people find us, which helps ensure we can continue to do this. Thank you.